Genesis 3, 6 through 19. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from food you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Thank you, Emily. <clears throat> well, good morning, and uh, before I really get started, I just wanted to also just thank everyone for your thoughts and concern last week. You may have heard some exaggerated uh, reports of my demise, um, but uh, I just want to assure everyone that I was not actually sick. I did fail the temperature test at the door. Uh, wasn't happy about that, but went home anyway. Um, so uh, that was a good learning experience, I think, for me and Clayton, and I'm glad that it was me and not any of the rest of you. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, put out some revised and clarified uh, virus procedures here to you soon uh, from just some of the things we learned. Uh, but I do just want to assure everyone, I know a couple of people have asked throughout the week, you know, hey, did you die? And I was like, no, actually, I'm quite alive. <clears throat> well, we continue with our Stolen Kingdom series this morning out of Genesis, as, as Emily just read for us. And we've seen over these first two chapters that Yahweh, the Creator God, has spoken many times. That's in fact almost all of what he does is he speaks. Many blessings, many pronouncements, invitations, only one command. Fleming Rutledge, who is a prominent preacher in the Episcopal Church, sets the stage for Genesis 3 this way. There was only one limitation for Adam and Eve. They were not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge biblically means experience. The first couple were not to, created to experience any evil. They are in a state of innocent ignorance. There is no suggestion in the story that it even occurs to them 
to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, until suddenly, here is this snake. In Genesis 3, we see something strange and alien make its way into Yahweh's good garden. A spiritual being created to praise the Lord who has abandoned his post. A fallen angel who is already lying about who and what he is before he even opens his mouth. Just a friendly neighborhood serpent who's figured out something special about this tree. Most of us are familiar with the story, and Emily just read it for us. The woman listens to the serpent. She beholds that the forbidden fruit is good-looking, that it will do what the serpent says it will do. So they eat it. God curses the serpent, punishes the humans. He promises that a grandson, a grandchild, will one day stomp the serpent. But until then, the humans must be exiled from the garden temple. And this exile is, of course, where we find ourselves today. We have never lived in the good world remembered in Genesis 1 and 2. A poet writing after World War II described our situation this way. He says we have to pretend that this is better than it is. We can't admit to the truth. And then here's his lines. Lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. It's the reality of life in exile from the garden. We all know it. And the good news, of course, is that the serpent stomper has come. In his death and rising again, Jesus Christ crushed the enemy and took his power away. But the kingdom, in ways that are hard for us to always understand, remains in dispute. The allies have landed at Normandy, so to speak, but the murderous tyrant has yet to be fully overthrown. And in the meantime, brothers and sisters, the good fight of faith continues. We are behind enemy lines in a stolen kingdom. And the Lord's word to us this morning is to have no fear in the face of the enemy before the power of death and all of death's henchmen, disease, chaos, disaster. The Lord has not left us without guidance, without weaponry for the fight that we find ourselves in. He wants us to trust his word, to listen to his word, to eat at his table, to live patiently. He wants us to have wisdom. And Genesis 3 shows us that wisdom only comes from God. We need wisdom. We need several things, but we need wisdom more than we need our health, more than we need our wealth. It is in wise choices that we will love others and honor the Lord. The serpent took advantage of the fact that humans have no wisdom on our own. In verse 6 it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She handed it to her husband who was standing there silent and he also ate it. The woman sees the fruit and calls it good. This is actually the same thing that we, we saw Yahweh himself do seven times during the creation. He would see what he had made, and he would pronounce it good. But the fruit, or at least their desire for the fruit, is not good. Eve is wrong. 
She does not have the wisdom of God to look at something and know whether it is good or evil yet. So she makes a bad call. Her desire was misplaced. While Eve looked at something bad and called it good, we see a little later in the story that Adam looks at good things and calls them bad. When God shows up to investigate what has happened, Adam takes no responsibility. He gives no explanation. He turns right around and goes, Well, this woman that you gave me. The man blames the woman and blames God for creating her. I imagine husbands, to some of our mild shame, we may have had similar thoughts from time to time. The knowledge of evil, the knowledge of good and evil, that the tree represents is not bad in and of itself. At the end of Genesis, the far end of it, we find the story of Joseph. We'll get there, I think, at some point next spring. Joseph is able to tell good from evil. He says his brother has intended this conspiracy for evil, but God has used it for good. He has wisdom. He has learned wisdom from Yahweh. We see that throughout the Bible, that phrase, knowledge of good and evil, is, a, is a, another way of talking about having wisdom. So wisdom itself is not bad. God was going to teach them, but God was going to teach them in his timing. And I think that Eve's grave error was deciding that it was good for her to take the knowledge herself now rather than wait on Yahweh's teaching. One of the little sayings that Pastor Clayton and I have is that people are hearts on sticks, not brains on sticks. And what we mean by that is that we are primarily driven by desire and affection rather than reason and logic. You may feel that you are primarily driven by reason and logic, but, uh, and I'm not saying that we don't think through things, but I think all of us actually are driven by our desires and affections far more than we may think. Politicians, advertisers, social media influencers, and if we're honest, many preachers know this and use it to their advantage. The facts don't matter a lot of the time. We just want what we want. We will often act against our own good in order to get what we want. How many of us have had maybe more than one serving of ice cream for dessert when we know we shouldn't have? Or maybe one more soda than we should have? Or maybe slept in an hour longer than we should have? I think we all know what I'm talking about. We will often act contrary to our own good because we want something that we think is better. We've all done this and we've watched other people do it. Those of you who have raised kids probably have a million stories of the ways in which little humans who don't have any wisdom will want things that are actually bad for them. I once had a carton of cherry tomatoes that, according to the label, had expired, but they looked fine and I wanted them, so I started eating them anyway. Unbeknownst to me, well, I quickly figured it out, one of those tomatoes was full of mold, and I knew that as soon as it burst open in my mouth. <laughs> then I went and laid down for a bit. <laughs> Our hearts make very lousy compasses. We should not follow them. We really shouldn't think badly of Adam and Eve. We can't. We do the same things. Day after day, we stand right there at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and make similar decisions. We look sin in the face and we call it good. We look blessings and gifts in the face. We call them hassles, inconveniences, and burdens. We must follow the word of God over our own desires. Our motives are often at least a little corrupt. 
Our hearts are often attracted to things that do us no good. We often do not know how to tell good from evil on our own. This is really, I think, why the Bible was given to us. It was given to us for wisdom. We need wisdom for our lives. We need wisdom to know how to raise children. We need wisdom to know how to use social media. We need wisdom to know how to spend our money. We need wisdom to know how to love our spouses and our friends and our family. We need wisdom to make career decisions. Now we know, and students of the Bible know, the Bible does not directly speak to all of those things or doesn't always say things as clearly as we want, but I think that that is part of the process. Wisdom is always the fruit of a process. It's not just something we can take when we want it. The Bible is given to form our affections, imaginations, and consciences so that we can live like Jesus did. And the Bible is for wisdom, to teach us to tell between good and evil. And at the end of the day, I think many things are actually less complicated than we would like them to be. God tells us, do not eat the fruit that I forbade you to eat. No matter how nice it looks, no matter how much you want it, no matter who else tells you that you can eat it. And this brings us back to the figure of the serpent. And Pastor Clayton uh, spoke about this last week a little bit. One of the key truths of Genesis is that our reality is not occupied by only us and God. There are other creatures, chief among them the spiritual beings. Eve and Adam had no wisdom on their own. That wasn't bad. That's how they were made. And Yahweh was going to teach them wisdom. It only became a problem because somebody else was in the garden who knew exactly what to say to turn human innocence and ignorance into sin and rebellion. As Rutledge observed, there is no suggestion in the story that it even occurs to them to eat the forbidden fruit until suddenly here is the snake. Adam and Eve did not consciously decide to do something wrong. They didn't know what wrong was. Verse 13, it says, The Lord God asked or said to the woman, What is this you have done? She doesn't know what it is she's done. All she can do is turn and look at the serpent and say, He tricked me. The enemy deceived them. He tricked them into breaking Yahweh's command. And I think that's a very, very key thing for us to lay hold of. Here's why. It tells us that sin is an alien power that has invaded our world and tricked our first parents into selling the whole human family into slavery. To use a different image, Adam and Eve contracted the disease and then passed it down to all the rest of us. Sin in itself is not the bad things that you and I do in the same way that the flu is not a sneeze. Our individual bad choices are symptoms of a vast conspiracy of cosmic evil that is beyond any of our individual ability to fix. When we do wrong, when we choose to disobey, we are complicit in sin's stolen rule. We've grown up in occupied territory and the only life we know before faith in Jesus is slavery to sin. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, we find that freedom takes some getting used to. And we can be sure that day by day the Holy Spirit is doing the good work of switching our citizenship over to heaven. We've gotten our new passport. We get in, but we're still learning the language and customs of Christ's country. And we've now joined the fight against the stolen kingdom from which we were rescued. The reality 
that sin is an enslaving tyrant whose power has gripped us down deep in our minds and hearts is one of the reasons we need the fellowship of believers. If sin was mostly about the bad things I do, then it's just up to me to be better. I don't know if this has occurred to you yet, but uh, that doesn't really work, and <laughs> that's really hard to do. And what that actually drives us to do is to hide ourselves from one another, right? Because I'm failing to live up to what God has commanded me to do. We need one another to confess our sins and be reminded of God's forgiveness. And we usually approach confession as a time to admit your mistakes, and that's a good thing to do. But I think it is more true to the biblical witness to approach confession as a report on the movements of the enemy. A port call where our provisions and armaments are replenished. A fireside chat that reminds us what a good friend we have in Jesus. Pastor Clayton and I meet once a week for prayer and confession. And we do tell each other the things that we did wrong. We don't shy away from that. But we know that what's happening is it's not Clayton's job to scold me, to take a ruler and slap my hand for the things that I did badly. It's to remind us of what Jesus has done and to ask for help and to ask for healing in the fight. But the Lord God called to the man in verse 9, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is the insanity that is the true fruit of sin, fear and shame in the presence of the Creator. Yahweh does not tell them to be ashamed and afraid. Adam and Eve do that to themselves. It's the same with us. Satan, that ancient snake, still lies and tricks and manipulates us. He doesn't always personally show up to tempt us. I think some of the medieval caricatures are incorrect. He doesn't have to, because we have internalized his script. Did God really say is the catchiest and most loathsome earworm in all of history. Assurances that no one will find out, assumptions that everybody does it, the voice of condemnation, the paralyzing venom of fear, the critic that brings to mind your failures, the mental leash that holds you back from bold faith, all of those ultimately come from the serpent. Like many of many a beloved preacher, once the devil starts talking, it's very tricky to get him to stop. But we see, I think, a clue and a key into making him shut up here in our passage. Verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, and the reptile has no response. He doesn't talk again. The serpent shuts up when the Lord God shows up. The serpent is silenced by the word of God. Yahweh never asks the serpent questions. He just starts cursing him. The serpent is silenced by the word of God. We see in Genesis 3.1 that the serpent's very first move, and really the only thing, his only move, is to undermine Eve's grasp on the word of God. And I think he knew that if Eve knew it perfectly, or if Adam would speak up, he would have no chance to trick them. But the humans were confused somehow about what the Creator meant when he said, do not eat the fruit. And in that moment, the kingdom was stolen. But we see that when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, a new Adam, same enemy, 
Jesus fought him off using passages from Deuteronomy. Be sure Jesus was not lugging that scroll around with him, that he could open it up and find it, and he did not have a Bible app installed on his phone. The scripture was in his mind. And I know, you know, he was also God, but I think sometimes we use that as an escape hatch to get out of actually doing the things he did. I won't let that happen today. He had a very human memory. If Jesus had not memorized those verses, he wouldn't have been able to use them to ward away the snake. The Bible is the weapon that we have been given for our fight against the enemy. But you can't use the Word of God if you don't know it, and you won't know it unless you're regularly reading it, hearing it, or otherwise receiving it. Just because we don't get gold stars anymore from the Sunday school teacher doesn't mean it's not a good idea to memorize scripture. Then we have it in our minds, no matter the circumstances, when the enemy comes to strike. The Bible will teach us wisdom, so we can tell between good and evil. The Bible shuts the devil up. The practice of confession patches us up from the damage we get from encounters with him. So does that mean that prayer and Bible reading and wisdom is the solution to sin? No, they absolutely are not. You can be very wise and also very wicked. It's not good enough to silence the serpent. Its head needs to be stomped. And in the midst of the curses and punishments, Yahweh promises that it will none of these things will last forever. There will be pain, but babies will still be born, the earth will still be cultivated, the human project will continue. The kingdom has been stolen, but one day a human will come who will win it back by defeating the serpent. Verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, skipping to 15, I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now Genesis doesn't tell us who this is going to be. It's an open question. As we continue on in the story, multiple seemingly prominent, promising candidates are put forward. But they're all bitten by the serpent before they can do anything about him. It isn't until Jesus is born that we find our serpent stomper. We are saved from sin, rescued from the stolen kingdom, only by the death and rising again of Jesus Christ. The thorns from Adam's curse were wound around Jesus' head. By the sweat of Jesus' brow and his shed blood, the rule of sin was broken. Jesus was placed in the tomb. He was returned to the ground. But his dust was precious in the sight of God, and he did not leave his chosen one to decay. As we've seen many times over the last few years, the Bible uses food and meals to communicate very deep and profound truths. So it shouldn't be any surprise. It's no coincidence that our first rebellion involved eating. It should also be no surprise that our salvation does as well. Matthew 26, the Last Supper, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take and eat. Same phrase from Genesis 3. She took it and she ate it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus offers us himself, his life, his righteousness, his peace, his wisdom. He is to be topmost in our affections. Jesus is our warrior, our serpent stomper, who fights the enemies that we cannot. He gives us one another for confession, encouragement, and a million other benefits. This pandemic has been disruptive and awful in many ways. You know this, I know it. Chief of those in my mind this morning is that it has been easier than ever for church families to begin to fall apart. It has been easier than ever for us to feel disconnected and distanced from one another. It's because we have to be socially distanced, but you know what I mean. And as we transition to indoor services, and you know, that's gonna be a fuzzy thing. We're not just gonna make the call. If it's a nice day out, we'll be back out here. But at some point, it's gonna get too cold for us to continue to meet outside. Many of you are gonna join via the live stream or watch a DVD or a CD later in the week. I urge all of us, live streamers and in-person people, fight for your brothers and sisters. Pray for one another, encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, memorize scripture. If you've never made that a practice, this is a great time to start. Do not forsake the fellowship of believers, whether inside or whether in person or online. If you're joining us from home and it's a communion Sunday, get your communion stuff together. It doesn't necessarily have to be grape juice and a cracker. If you've got a muffin and some milk, we'll allow it. Dr. Pepper and fruit snacks, we'll allow it. Participate in those things when we can. Send us written testimonies or record a short video of yourself so we can play that during that time. The enemy is and will be on the prowl to isolate, separate, and deceive God's people. We are no exception. With your Bible in one hand, Christ's body in the other, resist him, brothers and sisters. I'll close with Paul's benediction from the book of Romans. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen.